Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show, and this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we're going to go, we're going to be talking all about the World Ocean Observatory today, and we are going to be speaking with the founder and the director of this amazing organization and source of information about ocean and coastal issues. His name is Peter Neal. Uh, an amazing, amazing uh, man, and an amazing resource for folks who are interested in the ocean and the coast. Uh, can't wait to can't wait to learn more about the observatory. Well, I'm hoping that our listeners out there have had a wonderful Fourth of July weekend and are gearing up for a nice uh, middle of summer. Now we're back, and this conversation, ladies and gentlemen, with Peter Neal, a legend on the American shoreline. <laughs> Legend for a number of reasons, but probably one of the cooler uh, Wikipedia pictures you'll ever see. Kicked back, big bushy beard, <laughs> shades on. I mean, it's like a Hemingway vibe. I dig it. Yeah. And coming to us from uh, Maine, actually. Yeah. Totally. Cedric, Maine. A great part of the world. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Peter Neal, thank you for taking time out to talk to our listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks, guys. Uh, uh, let me say that uh, anybody who accepts the description of being in a, a legend in their own times should be suspect. Uh, the only person who I'd like to hear it would be my father, who was suspicious of me my entire life. So, uh, uh, and the other thing to note maybe at the beginning is that uh, I don't really like to be cast as an ocean expert. I never saw the ocean until I was 18. Um, when I go on it, I'm afraid. Uh, I have nightmares about drowning. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's all part and parcel of, a, uh, of a, a discovery of a place that is fundamentally uh, different, fundamentally mysterious, uh, essentially powerful, uh, and um, cannot uh, do anything but capture your imagination and, uh, and your feelings when you confront it. I didn't see the ocean until I was almost, well, I was 18 years old. My father took me to Gloucester. Um, and um, I, I didn't understand what it was that I was seeing, uh, uh, except that I knew that uh, it did something in transformational to me, for me. Peter, uh, could you take us back uh, to your younger years there before you were 18, what was your, why was it that, uh, you were not, uh, introduced to the ocean earlier? And what was your relationship like with, uh, not only water and water resources, but, uh, kind of the environment broadly? 
Well, I, I, uh, I was a city boy. I was born in St. Louis, about as far from every coast that you can be in the United States. Indeed. Uh, I knew a little bit about lakes. Um, they seemed like pleasant places to go. I did have feelings about the Mississippi River. Uh, I did go down from my house uh, on a streetcar that will date me, I'm afraid. Uh, and uh, sit on the levee and just watch the river. I can remember doing it over and over again, actually, my parents not knowing where I was. Um, innocent enough, but uh, uh, must have been influential. I must have known instinctively uh, that this, this, um, uh, this mattered. I once confronted a turtle uh, on the levee, um, enormous thing. Uh, wow. And it became a kind of icon for me. Uh, I, I identify with the turtle as a totem. Uh, one of the lovely things I about, like about it is that it's slow, deliberate, but gets there. Uh, and on the outside, it seems to have a, 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 a an impenetrable shell, but on the inside is a quivering, fearful uh, protoplasm, <laughs> like all the rest of us. <laughs> That's indeed like all of us. You've had an extraordinary career and and uh, a range of experiences. Uh, graduating from Stanford, uh, teaching English at Yale University, uh, a mainstay of the Nature Conservancy and the uh, the International Congress of Maritime Museums. I mean, you've got such a broad and, and amazing background. Uh, how how would you sum up the the uh, your uh, professional career leading to the foundation of the World Ocean Observatory? Well, I'd like to think it's more than an accidental journey. Uh, I was educated on both coasts. I uh, went into the U.S. Army after, after college, then to the, uh, uh, to the University of Iowa uh, Writers' Workshop. I, I had discovered in high school that I wanted to tell stories, that I wanted to write fiction, and I had a teacher who encouraged me to do so. And that was a that was a true privilege and wonderful, uh, wonderfully generous thing that he he did. Um, and so in 1970, 72 and 78, I published three novels in which I took a lot of risks. They're very unconventional books. They 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 defy the rules. They're very much the work of a young artist um, influenced by the French and the South Americans, all that. Uh, uh, and the qualities that were contained in that experience, which were risk and um, uh, imagination, uh, energy, uh, these were things that now, as I look back, approaching my 80th year, uh, I, I, I see as unifying elements, threads that have motivated me and helped me along the way to take advantage of opportunities that, that were there, but I didn't at first know they were, or when I first saw them, I, I was silly enough to think that I'll just do that and try it anyway, and it would work out, uh, and it did work out. So after writing the fiction and publishing the novels, uh, I, I got involved in environmental causes, um, land, and then I got a chance to run a small environmental organization in New Haven, Connecticut, had a sailing vessel. We took young people to sea and taught them marine science. So I sort of straddled earth and sea in this funny little job. And by virtue of some mergers and 
enterprise. I founded a, a, a public high school in the in the marine environment uh, in New Haven, still there. Um, wow. Uh, I, I merged the small not-for-profit with the state university system and created a kind of consortium of education organizations. And then all of a sudden there was the National Trust or Historic Preservation that they had a job opening. And, and I remember driving off the highway and saying, what the hell, I'll just try. Made a phone call, got an interview, uh, went to Washington and became the director of this uh, program of, for maritime preservation at the National Trust. Um, and, you know, totally unqualified. Let's just start there. Uh, and then I uh, couldn't stand it, really. I didn't like Washington. It was a, it's just a, a useless place as far as I'm concerned. Um, I never really uh, found uh, any traction there. I did the job and that was fine. And then the South Street Seaport Museum in New York was up. Uh, the director had been fired or resigned. I don't know what. So I went to New York and I stood out on the Pier 16 in Lower Manhattan, looking out toward the Brooklyn Bridge and the East River and the ships, uh, 3,000 tons of tall ships at the docks. And I said, well, what the heck? Why don't, why don't, why don't I try this? See what, 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 why should, why, why not? And wow. lo and behold, I have the job. So for 20 years, I ran this museum in Lower Manhattan and it was always on the edge because it was not endowed. It didn't have subsidies from the cultural institutions and budgets of the city. So it was very entrepreneurial. And that's where I have really discovered that 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 the same qualities that it takes to write a, a piece of experimental fiction are the same way same qualities that you need to to build an entrepreneurial institution um, and you have to do that by breaking the rules or at least confronting the rules and innovating and imagining things that that um, are counter to the accepted conventions and so that museum became a uh, a not-for-profit that went from about 18% earned revenue uh, in in five or six years to about 80%, almost unheard of. I mean, very few not-for-profits, you know, theaters or uh, sometimes orchestras get up into that 70, 80% earned revenue. Um, so for a museum without an endowment, this ability to create programming that, that would find funding because it was new, it was novel, it was different, it was effective. So I would take blind kids, the pro, we would take blind kids sailing on a hundred year old schooner in New York Harbor. Wow. And the foundations just couldn't believe it. And, and there were, they were it hap what happened every time, and this is the power of it, and the power of the ocean, we'd be sailing out near the Statue of Liberty and the, with the, the children and their, and their uh, chaperones. And we say, everybody lie down on the deck and just close your eyes for a minute. And we shut off the engines and we sail along in this old beautiful schooner pioneer. God. And we'd, wait, we'd get them up before they fell asleep. And we'd ask <laughs> these blind children to tell us what they saw. Hmm. And from the mouths of babes came some of the most beautiful poetry that you would ever imagine hearing children who couldn't see the ocean but they could hear it and they could feel it they could smell it uh and um wow. they were able then to articulate this in ways that had their 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 chaperones in tears we were always in tears with this program 
And year after year, the foundations would come back and, and we'd get two or three, four hundred thousand dollars a year to provide these this programming, which no one else was doing and which people told us uh, was exceptionally effective. We sent foster home kids from Maine on a seven month passage on a second schooner, also 100 years old, to Venezuela and back. It was as if it was two years before the mast. And all these young kids what? were about to be let go by the state, given a $100 check, uh, and uh, be left on their own, uh, out of foster homes, no protections. And every one of those kids learned from the sea simple, effective things. For example, the authority. The captain is the authority. The captain teaches the mate. The mate teaches the crew. The crew teach each other. And so there's a value system that's inherent in the experience that is, gives life meaning. Uh, the same thing would, would hold there for reverence for nature. You would suddenly realize that, that, that you, were, you were easily victimized by this, this experience, by this place. Uh, it was constantly changing. It could be angry. It could be beautiful. It could be uh, sustaining. It could be terrifying. Mm -hmm. And yet all of these values would be part of your life experience that you wouldn't get ever from another kind of upbringing. So these kids all went out, they all went back to school. Most of them went to college. I wish we had tracked them all beyond that because I suspect every one of them has become a, a first-class citizen with, with, with values that engage them constructively in society. So these were the things that in the museum uh, I tried to, to explain um, same thing was looking at artifacts. You know, you collect this stuff in these museums. Um, and what I kept <clears throat> trying to do was to take a, a, an artifact and release the cultural power that was inside it. And it wasn't just a painting or a piece of sculpture or a piece of, of nautical bric-a-brac, uh, but it was something that had, had a utility. It was something that people used and relied upon. Uh, it could have been a it could have been a block, uh, and if that block snapped under stress, the whole crew would be at risk. Uh, uh, it was also built by somebody, and so it 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 evinced you know characteristics of work. Who who built this? What were the skills that they needed? What was the experience that they relied upon? And all of that is inherent in one simple object that's in a case in a museum. So you can, you, can, you can turn the staid old museum and its exhibits um, uh, uh, and you can make those uh, essentially vivify by looking at them from different perspectives and understanding the social implications that every one of them represents. Uh, storytelling. Wow. Uh, th that is just an incredible stunned. overview there. Uh, I'm stunned. Likewise. Um, and I just have to ask, Peter, uh, because you it's just clear that you're just an awesome thinker when it comes to coming up with these ideas. And I'm, I'm just curious. And you're a writer and you speak beautifully and you you com you compose this stuff um as a writer would in many respects. I mean, this is you. You talk to me. You talk more like a a writer than a scientist. I would say in, in some respects. And um, I'm I'm wondering, as a young person, what books you read. What 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 thinkers were your um, your influences early on? Oh, you know, I was a mundane student. 
I, excuse me, I was a mundane student. I, I was a C student. I, I got by. Um, I did read, I did read sea stories. At one point I thought I wanted to apply to the Naval Academy and then I realized that I had to do mathematics um, yeah. and I was totally incapable. Um, um, you know, so I, I really can't go back to some seminal reading uh, where I, where my imagination was shaped in such a way that I knew what the path was. Um, I, I, I found it along the way. Uh, and uh, in, in, in fiction writing, I was, I was influenced by, by French writers uh, and particularly by the South American magic realists. Uh, they, 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 because what do they do? They're social historians masking these magnificent tales of, of human, human endeavor and social encounter in a, in, a, in a timeless world in which transformations are normal. Uh, and my books reflected those. Hmm. Uh, in in my third novel, I made up a whole medical language. I put puns in all the lines. Um, <laughs> I had books that had three parts with three characters in each part, and in each part, the characters changed. Not only did they change who they were, but they also changed gender, so that there was this kind wow. of weird uh, shifting of perspectives that were mixed together. Um, uh, and so they, they, they were exercises without me really understanding what they were. They were exercises in the freedom that imagination applied can give in to, to somebody and can bring to a, to a situation. Um, I love that. And, and my, my, my wife will tell you that I have a terrible problem uh, of two two parts. One is that when I meet somebody, it's called the interrogation. I want to know all about them. <laughs> I don't want them to know about me. I want to I want to know all about who they are, where they came from. You know, the same questions you're asking me. I want to ask them. Right. Uh, and then the other problem I have, which which is awful, which is is uh, uh, novelizing or fictionalizing their futures. Uh, I I <laughs> love talking to young people. And saying, well, what if this? What if that? What if this? Uh, have you tried that? Have you thought about this? Um, uh, and sometimes it just stuns me. I was talking to a fellow who, for all the, uh, just the other day, all of the uh, exterior trappings of this young man uh, were uh, of his generation, corner office, lots of money fast, uh, all that sort of stuff that we right. read about. Uh, and I said to him at one point, um, have you thought about nursing? Hmm. I don't know why I asked him that question. He looked at me, his face completely changed. And he said to me, how did you know? Huh. I didn't know. But somehow I sensed in him a, a maybe a potential or a sympathy, empathy that was there, that he was doing his best to hide. Uh, and he said, I've thought very, very seriously about it, and I'm afraid to tell my parents. And I said, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, right. Do not be ridiculous. Well, I, this- I, 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 I've just, speaking of parents, I, I've got to ask, you mentioned your father. Yeah. Um, what was, 
what kind of feedback did you receive from um, your elders in your life uh, with from from this kind of you know avant-garde uh, modern <laughs> uh, view of the world? Well, my father was a lawyer, and my mother was a woman of the era of the, uh, a volunteer, professional volunteer. She she was citizen of the year in St. Louis because of her volunteerism. My father was an attorney. Um, he never understood it. Uh, he, he um, uh, when I, I took a trip after I was first married, with my, I was married, my first wife, we drove a, a, a Land Rover from Paris to, to Kathmandu. Uh, it took wow. two years and we drove, we drove all across the Mideast. You can't do it now, but uh, so we went into Israel from Jordan and before the 1967 war, we went across and we were interned in a refugee camp on the Iran-Iraq border. We spent, we did about 30,000 miles in a circumnavigation of India. Uh, and wow. my father, apparently, my sister tells me this, would get these postcards that I sent from these faraway places and he would put little push pins on a world map as to where where I was. But not once did he ever ask me to my face about it. You're kidding. I would want to know all about that. That would be just that I don't know how you would not. Well, here's the other thing. When he came to New York and I showed him around the South Street Seaport and it was night. And, you know, one of the things that we was part of my job was I was the landlord for the Fulton Fish Market, and which was a, one of the greatest artifacts of our time. It's now moved over to a sort of more sterile place in huh. the Bronx or Queens somewhere. Uh, but it was amazing, amazing, amazing place, worked through the night. And so I took him out to see it and I showed him the museum. I showed him the ships and he said, well, wait a minute, you have responsibility for this? And I say, yeah. And he said, well, what about this? And I say, yeah. And this fish market? Well, yeah. Uh, and he would just look at me and, and he just didn't know what to say. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> and, it's and, a different uh, business than being a lawyer, I guess. It's, it is. I mean, it might be a little but, foreign for him. <laughs> but he, but, and I regret that we never had a conversation before he died. I have a long story about that, which I won't bother to tell you. But, but the point is, is that it wasn't his fault, it, nor it was just the fact that he he just hadn't been raised to know how to understand mm. what somebody was doing. He'd not been raised. He'd not been trained. His life experience was completely alternative from that. Yeah. And so it was beyond his imagination even to conceive that his son was doing it. I see. And in a way, it was beyond mine as well. It's extraordinary. I The phrase you used, I want to go back to this because... This is a, this is a, and I don't, I, I'm sorry that we're, I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm incredibly curious about this life that you've led that is in, so incredibly creative, it seems, and has gone through so many different iterations. Um, the phrase was the freedom of imagination applied. Wow. I want to know more about that. What do you well, mean by that? That is an extraordinary phrase. You know, you have to remember though that I, you know, I'm a, that's a that's a that's a statement that many 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 millions of people in the world today can't make. Mm. Yeah. So I come from a privileged birth. Um, I I I I was given the gifts uh, by fate and by my parents of education 
and 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 the freedom to choose. Yeah. Uh, and anyone who has that and doesn't take advantage of it makes me angry. Uh. Because there's so many people out there with equal talent yeah. who are not given the opportunity. The circumstances uh, around them are are it's a different fate, and it's a it's not easy to get out of that condition. And I have huge admiration uh, for people who do, um, for the strength of character and the perseverance and the resilience that it takes. Yeah, that I didn't have to. I didn't have to do it that way. And so that privilege is something that I uh, was not entitled to, even though I was given it. Uh, and to fail to live up to that responsibility, uh, just as I feel today about the World Ocean Observatory, when I'm actually creating messaging that goes far beyond my little office here in Sedgwick, Maine, and literally engages millions of people worldwide, there's a built-in humility there hmm. uh, and there's a built-in responsibility there that must be acknowledged it cannot be denied that you and it cannot be betrayed uh, and so that set of circumstances that we've talked about was a kind of ideal um, set uh, to to allow me to become who I am whatever that is uh, and um, Maybe we should talk about the work uh, and forget. We, 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 we will, but I, I think it's fair to say I, I was going to ask you what motivates you to continue to be as productive and creative, but I believe you've explained it. Uh, and that, that commitment um, and recognition of the obligation that came from the opportunities uh, you were given, uh, you know, not all seeds fall on fertile ground, and there are a lot of people who share those attributes uh, or those opportunities and do not treat them in the way that you have throughout your life. And uh, it's a hell of a testament to, to continue oh, that, to be as creative as you have. It's extraordinary. Yeah. They make me angry, those guys. Yeah. I, I, I must say, I just, I, 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 and sometimes I can't keep my mouth shut, but uh, um uh, but there you there you have it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the World Ocean Observatory. Uh, uh, when did you when did you create it? When when was it founded? And uh, can you describe uh, what you hoped for it at the time that you put it together? Well, well actually, guys, it was it was um, actually before I finish that. Let me just say one more thing about motivation. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're young. You're young lads. You're out there in the world. Um, I'm an elder, uh, and there is a, such a thing, uh, what I call letting the old man in. Um, and when you let the old man in, and you see it often when people retire, uh, they, they, they lose their interest in, in, in many aspects of life. They focus on one, it gives them pleasure, no judgment. But I can't let the old man in. And so every time I want to slow down, I say to myself, oh, there he is, there he is, there he is. Um, uh, start something else. Do something more. Uh, and so um, that's another part of the motivating, which is just simply the realities of, of 80 years of life uh, and, and the actuarial statistics that confront you. Oof. There it is. The secret, um, the secret of it all. 
You know, you yeah. got to stay busy. Not letting the old man. You know, I'm 61, so for me, just starting to see a little, a little knock at the door on this direction. I'm, I'm and, 35, uh, and my old man is is <laughs> hovering around the house. Already. I tell you, the pandemic really. Yeah, I think the old no, man might have. No, it didn't help. Too soon. But, you know, the founding of W2O is actually a perfect example of what we've been talking about. I was walking in Boston, Cambridge. Uh, it was a terrible sleety winter day. I didn't have a coat, the right coat. I was getting wet and cold. So I stepped into this used bookstore there off of Harvard Square, and I went to the dollar bin, and I was flumming through. And I came across a book called The Ocean, Our Future. Hmm. And it was the report of uh, an independent commission on the future of the ocean uh, that had been convened by Mario Suarez, who was the president of Portugal, uh, recently uh, had stepped down. And he had, it wasn't a UN group, it was an independent group, hmm. and they created this plan for the ocean. Now, this is 1998, which was the UN year of the ocean. Right. And that report, in my view, still stands as the most prescient and powerful one that's ever been written and proposed. Uh, there have been many others. There are lots of people who've put their names and, and their work all together on such a thing. But they, they tend always to be government organizations or government-related organizations, and they tend to be a little bit more careful and uh, more uh, uh, afraid to actually confront real solutions that are, that are there before us. So I'm here reading this thing on a some sort of bean chair, one of those you know floppy bit chairs. In the, in the place. So there I am thumbing through this book. I paid a buck for it, uh, and I felt my life had changed. Here was here was here was work that came out of the the all of the things that I had done heretofore, um, and for which I had no qualifications. Um, but I read it, and at the end, there was a penultimate recommendation that there be an online place of exchange of information and educational resources about the ocean, defined as an integrated global social system, thereby transcending the conventional focus on species and habitat to connect the ocean to climate, freshwater, food, energy, health, trade, transportation, science, technology, policy, governance, coastal development, religions, cultural traditions. The wow. sea connects all things. And it came like a revelation to me. You, you would have thought I could have figured this out before, uh, but it just was so condensed in that, in that report. The same year, Schwarish, who I met at one point, um, created a, a, a separate commission on freshwater. Uh, and out of that came what's called the World Water, Water Manifesto and the World Water Forum, which is the other silo, the ridiculous separation between freshwater and salt, mm. um, which still characterizes the structure of organizations, uh, government organizations all around the world. Yeah, uh, The ocean begins at the mountaintop and it ends at the abyssal plain. And it's an entirely integrated social system wow. that relates to all those forces within our lives and on which our, our lives depend, have depended, depended today, and will depend tomorrow. Wow. So when I figured this out, I said to myself, my goodness, this is the 
fifth five-year plan for, for, for South Street, I ran into a new chairman who didn't uh, was not an entrepreneur. He was a banker. And bankers cut their way to success. Hmm. Entrepreneurs earn their way to success. And so he and I um, agreed to disagree. I, I resigned um, and took the World Ocean Observatory concept with me. Uh, I went to see a member of that commission who at the time was the head of the UN uh, Intergovernmental Oceanographic uh, Commission in the UN, uh, Patricio Bernal. And I met him in the lobby of the, uh, of the UN. And I said, well, here I am. I have this thing. Here's the book. It's all thumbed through. Uh, uh, I'd like to do this. And he said, well, why not? And I said, well, I, I, I have no qualifications. He said, well, it was supposed to have been mm -hmm. done by a group of people in Malta but they're too slow and they're lazy. It'll never happen there. So why not? So I did some more due diligence. I talked to Bob Gagosian, who at that time was at, 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 at uh, uh, Woods Hole. And I, I, I talked to others in, in the ocean business. And they all just looked at me and said, well, sure, why not? Give it a try. So mm. that's to me is a that's licensed to hunt. Yeah, that is. Uh, and so that was 17 years ago, and I started out, and it's just me and one other person. They're just two of us. Yeah. And we built this thing um, day after day. It changes every day, uh, and I like to describe it as wide and deep and dynamic as the ocean itself. Fantastic, and it's extraordinary. And I think for for the listeners out there, if you are on a uh, – desktop or you're in a place where you can get on the web or a tablet Peter. or a tablet uh the world ocean observatory.org uh when i look at the work that you do and when i first heard that it was you and one other person i am still to this day stunned by the level of work that you produce the breadth of it um it's it's incredible it is such a productive high quality uh site that you have created the amount of information the educational resources it just can't you can't do justice to this by describing it people need to go and look at it but what can you tell us a little bit maybe introduce our audience to what is offered in the world ocean observatory what are you trying to accomplish well we advocate through communications um and responsible science uh and we use multiple platforms uh, so we we have uh, the website itself, about 2.5 million visitors last year. Um, we have uh, audio, uh, syndicated uh, audio feature and podcasts. Uh, we have a digital magazine. Uh, we have aggregated video channel. Uh, we have a w online forum for ocean solutions. Uh, we have a curriculum uh, that we have developed along with a catalog of curriculum for teachers to access and use. Um, uh, we have a publications program. Uh, we mm -hmm. run an international maritime fi uh, uh, heritage film festival. Uh, we're building a virtual aquarium. Uh, these are all things that actually you don't need massive overhead. You don't need massive uh, teams of people to do. You need good people, hardworking people. Right. My colleague, Tricia Badger, who's we've been together now, what, almost a decade, uh, uh, is, is 
remarkably skilled, and I've never had a person in my life who was such a joy to work with. We 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 don't we we I'm in Sedgwick, she's down in in near uh, mid coast, down near Rockland, Maine. Uh, we're a virtual audio, uh, office. The pandemic did nothing to, <laughs> to interrupt our work whatsoever. We were fully prepared. We also uh, don't require, because of the economics and the efficiencies of the internet, uh, we, we don't pay any rent. We don't have any overhead. And so the, the flexibility that that allows you to maximize uh, the, 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 the funding that you receive and to, to, to calculate a return on investment of the, of the prescient individuals who donate to support us um, uh, is amazing. And, yeah. uh, and you know, do we, are, we, are we wizened old people hanging over our screens and desiccated and, you know, <laughs> uh, working through the midnight oil? No, no, no. We live lovely lives in beautiful places and uh, we have families and we have friends. We live a very nice life in the sense that that the that the that the structure allows us to work this way. The topic is so big that you can never finish it. That and is, that's a, that's that a wonderful true. challenge to have because um, you know you 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 are attuned to the fact that there's there's no finish line. Um, I do think about legacy. I do think about what's going to happen to it when I'm not necessarily here. Uh, Trish will carry it on or someone else will come up and, and, and take my place. But it won't need some colossal endowment and it won't need a, um, a, a, a an affiliation uh, like with a university or something like that, which will destroy it, which will kill it with overhead, stealing overhead and bureaucratic administration and rules and regulations from the outside. Um, you know, it's the flexibility of the, a kind of modern uh, uh, institutional structure that lies at the heart of its success. It, you know, I, I've got to say, uh, I look at what you've done and I look at what Peter Ravella and I, um, my co-host sitting right here with me, uh, have been trying, have been working on for the past several years here with the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. And our goal was to broaden the perspectives, create kind of this renaissance coastal citizen where we are conscientious of the interconnectedness of uh, the ocean and how it impacts our lives, even when it might not be just terribly obvious to us. And it seems like you beat us to it in a way. <laughs> <laughs> by 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 a long way. By like maybe yeah, maybe no, a I decade or it, more, not more. Fifteen years. <laughs> no, it's extraordinary. Years. But uh, I've got to ask. I got to ask Peter uh, Neil. Um, over those seventeen years of working on this, what are some of the elements of the World Ocean Observatory that may that what what it what did it look like seventeen years ago? What have you added over time? Uh, how has it changed over this over its run? If I think about that, I think I have to say very little huh. in the sense that I, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to visualize things. So somewhere in my files, there's a, a, a napkin or a piece of paper. It's in my notebooks where I drew what the Ocean Observatory could be. 
as a sort of a line and block chart, line mm-hmm. and block chart, kind of a table of organization. Uh, and I just I just had let my mind um, one go across the full spectrum of topics, uh, and then uh, then suddenly say, well, what are the what are the communications tools that are available? And and all of those things were written down very early on. What then happened was a kind of continuum of 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 contribution day after day. It's like building a sandcastle. You put a little bit in, a little bit in, a little bit in, and suddenly you sort of a lump turns into something that's a kind of a recognizable rampart. And then all of a sudden there's a tower and the moat's filled with water and there's a drawbridge and there's a da- there's a damsel in distress with her hair hanging down. And, and you and you suddenly say, well, my goodness, you've built an edifice. Yes. And there's yeah. a famous story about uh, some uh, fellow who was talking about uh, great men and, and building great institutions. And he's talking about uh, the cathedrals and of, of Europe. And uh, he refers to this old man who's, who's sweeping, sweeping the church, the, uh, the cathedral floor. And he says, well, what are you doing? What are you doing, you know, you common man, laborer? Uh, and the answer is, I'm building a cathedral. Mm. And it's just that simple. And by the way, it's a metaphor for how we're going to build a response to climate and, and the corruption of the ocean which is it's not going to be this giant edifice that builds from the top down. Chartres and Notre Dame were not built from the top of the towers down. They were built by lots of laborers at the bottom, setting the stones, building the stones. You know, the the nobility shows up when you set the keystone. Uh, The church um, folks, Mm -hmm. they show up when it's time to have the first uh, uh, ceremony. But the fact is the work has been done by all these individuals around the world. And that's why we keep talking about citizens of the ocean worldwide, that, that, that every one of us is the same in our reliance on the ocean, uh, the ocean's largesse. Um, and you can, you can look at it from a perspective in East Asia, or you can look at it from a perspective in East New York. And fundamentally, it's the same. Mm, yeah. We've had we have a thing called our, our ocean space, and it's for educational curricula or projects that have been posted by young people. And my favorites are now are, are two. One is a, a school in Japan, and one was a school in Southern California. And they they looked at one coastal phenomena, tide pool or something, and they both did it independently. And then they put their two reports together, and they were the same. Yeah, uh, different language, but the same. We just had one between kids in in the Bahamas and kids here in Maine, and they did a project together in terms of water quality and sampling. And what did they found? It's the same. The process, the technologies, the the methods, the the analysis, all of those things were the same. Their results were different, but necessarily, but that's good because then now you can compare and, and try to understand, well, what made this one different from that one? And so... Uh, it's this it's this education from the bottom up that is the essence of what I've always wanted to do and which I bang my head against all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here you, you, you come across uh, what would be a trend um, in, in what's going on now. And the pandemic has sort of 
proven it to me in a way. Um, you're going to have to forgive my cynicism a little bit here. But the what I call the ocean apparat is all of these government agencies across across the world, um, the academies, uh, the research centers, uh, the uh, the institutes, um, and the is, big, are you uh, referring to some sort of ocean deep state here, Peter? Well, yeah, there is. And, and, and by the way, I'm not going to condemn it. I'm not trying to make a judgment against it. The, the NGOs are part of it. It's this enormous um, construction. And I would do nothing but celebrate their work. But my question to them always, which gets me sometimes a little bit of trouble, is what difference has it made? Hmm. Is the ocean today better than it was 10 years ago? Are the conditions different? Do we have in place the things we need? Um, yes, we have more data. Yes, we have more policy. In some places, we have remarkable successes in, in one solution in terms of marine protected areas. But you can make the entire ocean a protected area, and it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. Hmm. So, when so you're, when, what I keep asking them is, why, why don't, why is communications and connection always the last thing funded? Yeah. Why is it the the? And I'll stand up in a, in international conferences, and and in the end, at those conferences when they have the recommendations, inevitably someone will say, well, you know, in the end, it's all about education. And uh, that's what we have to do. We have to educate the public. Yeah. So I will stand up and say, well, may I just ask you a question about that? Um, so in your, your budget is what? Well, it's, you know, $40 million. Um, well, how much is in your communications department? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, $675,000. Yeah. How many staff? Five. How many positions are full, filled? Uh, two. What are they doing? Well, they're running the membership program. They're doing the annual report. They're doing the uh, yeah. uh, the uh, the PR work for the chief executive. Uh, they're etc. And I'm saying, well, they're not actually communicating no. to the general public at all. No. Now and, I understand. Now when I look at world the World Ocean Observatory website then I see World Ocean Radio and these great segments that you constantly are putting out made available to the general public the World Ocean Explorer the forum the publications uh, this website is meant to reach the guys who swept the floor and uh, placed the rocks and the stones together to build the cathedral you're trying to reach the world out there um, and you have millions of people who are engaged with your uh, extraordinary website every year. Um, when you look at the challenges in the state of affairs uh, when it comes to the ocean and coastal issues, uh, are you optimistic? Are you seeing things that give you hope or are you more concerned about the direction we're headed? Well, I'm always optimistic. I was born an optimist. So I mean, that's that's. <laughs> You know, an optimist looks at looks at, at, at what a pessimist sees and invents an alternative narrative. Uh, and I'm very good at, at alternative <laughs> narratives. Yeah, that's a Peter Neal uh, special right there. <laughs> but but I guess my point here is that every bit counts. 
The trouble is there are not enough bits and it's not counting enough. And what I don't quite understand is the, is the, is the lack of urgency. I mean, it's because of the, of the size of scale of these organizations, governments and all these others, that it's very hard to be innovative. And sometimes they have leaders that allow them to be innovative. You know, for a while, one of them does some really interesting things. Another one, foundation may fund some really interesting things. Then they sort of wane. Uh, and then another one comes up and there's a new leader and that leader opens it up in with a new a new vision for the for the institution. And they they start making good, good, uh, large scale, different moves and strategies. All of that is good and we need it. I'm not I, 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 I don't want any of this to say that I'm being critical of anything that they do other than their inability or unwillingness to actually understand what true communication connection is. It's not just about fundraising. It's not just about uh, um, uh, uh, paywalls. It's not just about uh, uh, more data and more scientific grants. It's about how do you make the connection with the common man and woman uh, and child more and more these days who understand inherently they may not know exactly what to do about it, but they have they understand inherently that the ocean is um, essential to their work and to their community development, to and and and, and to their health, and they can no longer tolerate um, our any kind of indifference hmm. other than a full um, a, a immersion in a strategy. Wow. Uh, my book, The Once and Future Ocean, argues for something called the called hydraulic society, which says that the old paradigm was unlimited growth, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, more money, more stuff, more, more, by consumption, more growth, consumption, enabled, enabled by fossil fuels. That was yeah. the 20, 19th and 20th, 20, early 21st century paradigm and we're, we're, we're trying to deal with how to, to change it. Well, the 21st paradigm, century paradigm should be sustainable growth. We have to grow because we have to feed and, and clothe and make people healthy. So we're based on sustainability and enabled by the freshwater ocean continuum huh. because that's the one natural system huh. that connects Everyone, anywhere, anytime, any age, any place, in any in any situation, hmm. we can live without chocolate. We can live without oil. We can live without gold. We can live without all these things, but we cannot live without water. Right. Two days, we die. Family, two or three days, we die. Man, you know it, Cities, what I love. Regions, we die. It's it, being able to bring people to an understanding of something that fundamental uh, where we don't separate out the tops of the mountains from the bottom of the abyssal plain, that this is a part of the planet. This is the life giving force, uh, literally. Uh, it, it's it's such a it, it, you know, it's an expansive understanding. And uh, it seems like what you've been doing to to develop that it kind of goes back to that story Tyler. i think one of the great things you've said is about the blind kids on a schooner 
out by the Statue of Liberty on the deck, eyes closed, what do you understand? And here are children who have no visual capacity, but had an innate or emotional understanding uh, of the issue. It's kind of extraordinary how this realization occurs, isn't it? I mean, what have you learned about how to bring people to this connected, deeper understanding of what's at stake when it comes to the ocean? Well, well you know, it's, it seems so complicated when it actually is so simple. Okay. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the problem is that there, there's a whole lot of structure that's reliant on the alternative, the old vision, the old, you know, it's dinosaurs walking in a, in a field of, of crumbling architecture. Um, and it's not just a metaphor. I mean, our infrastructure is falling and our institutions are, 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 are prehistoric in many ways. They can't move. They're sinking into the mud. Uh, and change is inevitable. So we're supposed to be human, smart people. We're supposed to be able to understand and see, observe, and act in our own self-protection. And we're not necessarily doing it to the extent that it's required. So if you take something simple as planning through the, the, the idea, the concept of hydraulic society, and you lay that over every aspect of our being, of our organizational being, well, suddenly upstream downstream effect is de facto. You can't do something upstream that has a down, negative downstream effect. So then the whole idea of boundaries and municipal re, 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 and regional uh, uh, separation. Yeah, jurisdiction is, becomes yeah. less regionalism, sensible. Regionalism then suddenly becomes a management structure. And that's local and, and, and communities get together. I have, there are five little towns here around where we are. And suddenly at the town meeting just a, a week ago, I'm seeing, hearing people talking about re regionalism, so regional solutions. Because no single one can go and do it on its own. So they have to regionalize. So all their old biases and petty rivalries and institutional histories are going to have to go by the wayside because there's no choice. And, and when you look at cities like Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil, or other places already in, in this world that are out of water, climate-related uh, changes, drought, erosion, extreme weather, um, corruption, uh, decaying infrastructure, uh, you suddenly have the, the reality that people who are in a, in, a, in a world city are having to go to the pumps with, with, with gallon jugs to, to get water that's been tank trucked in. Yeah. And so their hygiene changes, their, their endless showers are no longer possible. All of these things that are so easy to fix in and of themselves are become absolutes. You have to do them. My well here in Sedgwick, Maine, ran out of water. Let me tell you how ironic that felt. Uh, and I said to myself, well, what's the answer? Well, one, one answer is conservation. One answer is collect rainwater off the roof. Uh, you know, one answer is change your, 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 your habits and how you use water. Um, uh, and then if you extrapolate that up, if you start going down the, the, the uh, I use this example all the time, you, don't, you go down the aisles of a supermarket and I hear rushing water. I don't hear anything. I don't hear the people jabbering about the prices. I hear water cascading because I start hearing all the water that has been used to, to make the product, to package the product, 
to transform the product, uh, transfer the product and all the rest of it to come to this supermarket. And I've advocated for water labeling. Uh, we have labeling for everything on earth in our package. You open it up and you can find out how much sugar and how much this and how much that and how much this. But there ought to be a label that says to make this biscuit, to make this box of product took this many gallons of water. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is that we don't pay for it. We, we, we want to monetize it. Water now is being monetized by corporations. Oh, yeah. It's an asset base. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's outrageous what's happening in yeah. that regard because it's a natural resource that belongs to everybody in equal parts. And so people that are coming in, Coca-Cola now makes more profit ne out of water than it does Nestle. soda, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, what an extraordinary perspective. Uh, I, when you say, you know, water labeling, uh, almonds are an extraordinarily yeah. high consumptive water product. It's like 40 gallons a pound to make right. to produce almonds in, in the Central Valley of California. Um, An area with a pretty severe water problem right now. Really severe right now. Uh, you know, Peter, it's it's it, it, 80 years uh, you've been involved in and trying to bring this understanding to the world at large, uh, particularly younger people. Uh, when you look around and 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 uh, assess uh, what's happening now, are there are there organiz not organizations? Are there people? Are there trends? Are there events occurring that you're like, okay, this is on the right track. This these people are figuring it out. They're moving in the right direction. Is there? Are there examples that you can cite that that uh, that indicate that there's been some resonance to the ideas that you've been discussing for so many years? I wish there were so many that I could just it would be a cascade of, of, of answers to that question. What I see is a slow realization, often the hard way. Yeah. Um, as things that people take for granted are taken away. And so they slowly are becoming more and more aware as individuals. And so they become, they, they become new, new enlistees in the, in the, in the environmental sustainability uh, movement. Uh, and they need to vote. Uh, they need to vote for candidates. They need to vote their shares if they have pensions yeah. and I mean, pension investments. They need to, to essentially start uh, engaging in, in the alternative process that will change the system uh, that, 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 that we have, which is basically bankrupt hmm. and is no longer going to work. Now, 10 years ago, we knew that oil was, no, was exhausted and was, never, was not going to work as a, a future fossil uh, energy source. And yet 10, 15 years, oh, yeah. the entire fracking movement, all of that stuff was a prolongation of the old way of thinking. And even today, when you look at some of these ESG funds and, and corporate yeah. statements and you look beneath them, you realize that they're just wrapping themselves up in a new costume. It's, you know, they, 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 they're, they're, there's a, if you look at banks, if you start analyzing how banks are what they're investing in, and you start looking at them in terms of what they say they're trying to do. Yeah. And you look at the actual percentage of success that they've had. It's it's embarrassing, actually. It's, it ought to be embarrassing, and it's humiliating because in in effect, 
they can't wrap their minds around alternative profit. No, when they uh, when there's when there's understandable ways to make money and they're they're systems that they understand uh, and they're safe, they're going to keep doing it. Uh, new ways of thinking and new times and new measures are a risk. And uh, but I'll tell you one of the things that gives me hope. And 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 you said you know a lot of things have happened. People have learned it the hard way. It does seem to be that is the driving force for human the human in the human experience and I, I i bet on the fact that reality i like to say reality is a persistent teacher and the reality of climate change and the reality of changing uh drought conditions and what's happening around the world uh will impact the the human community it will impact us economically down to our very lifestyle as you said, and uh, at some point we get hit upside the head often enough we start to think, you know, maybe we have to do it differently. I, I hate to think that we can't get ahead of it, but it seems that we have to suffer th- through the failure of our existing system in order to build a new one. Well, that may, that may be uh, something that has to happen. I, I would rather think that we can solve our own problems and actually apply energy and imagination to yes. do it. Um, but you know, if all of a sudden climate and heat and, and, and temperature, water temperature destroys the main lobster uh, industry, that's going to affect a whole lot of people. If it's affecting the tourism business, that's, that's going to affect uh, because of coastal issues. That's going to affect a whole lot of people. It's all out there and it's foreseeable. It's already happening. It's not as if it's something that's going to start. Nope. 100% foreseeable. Now. No, absolutely. And it's, 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 we're already looking back at, at events that are obvious evidence of what, we've been, what, what is being talked about. So I'll give you one example uh, of, 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 of something that I think is really quite remarkable. Uh, you asked for who, what's out there that where you really start seeing the, the change. There's a, there's a thing called the Danish Hydraulic Institute. And it's a Congo. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a private company, but its largest investment is the Danish government. I think that's how it works. And um, they do water planning. And if you look at their enterprise and you look at the examples of what they're doing, so they get hired to do a master water conservation plan for the for the uh, uh, for the Nile River or okay. the Suez Canal. All right. And they sit down and they do a massive analysis of the geography and the social geography, and the economic geography. All of these overlays are laid down in such a way that that release the information about water consumption uh, in in the region. And then they start looking, projecting this demand over time. And you suddenly realize that over time, the demand is going up to the point where the supply is either not enough or will collapse because it will just be used up. Okay. And so what they then do is say, all right, that's the problem you've hired us to solve. We've done the analysis. Here's what you do. So you integrate this structure. You move these ministries together. You you, you issue bonds that have different criteria in them. You you take what's available in terms of, of, of regional governance 
funds that are available through many companies, uh, countries that, uh, you know, border this watershed. And you start implementing a plan that has its outcome, adequate water for population in 2050. We're talking about, we're talking about not even getting rid of emissions uh, by 2050. Right. And yet, and yet, <clears throat> Uh, we need, we're going to need water long before that. So this imagination and that they're applying this getting outside the system, thinking creatively, this is the attribute that you're looking for rather than these institutionalized thinking, narrow mindedness. But really what you're saying in the Danis Hydraulic Institute is, is a willingness to, to venture far and wide to consider the social implications of governmental structures and just rethink it from the top down? Is that the, is that the attribute? Exactly. That, and they uh, have the tools. They have the analytical tools, the data collection. They have the computer capacity. They have all those things that then can create something that when it's handed to the minister or the prime minister, it, 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 it has a coherence and a justification that he or she can understand. Um, now, that there's still the political will required to 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 institute Indeed. apply it Indeed. Uh, and it that requires political risk uh, but you know um, uh, if you can't provide water uh, if a government cannot provide water to its citizens it will not stand that's failure yeah well, you know, yeah. I, I, when people say it's, you know, when it comes to the issue of politics, you often hear people say, well, that's just politics. We're here to talk about the science. And my retort to that has always been it's all politics. Every decision in the public sphere goes through a political process somewhere along the line. And and innovators have got to be willing to tackle and understand the political dynamics of what they're doing as much as the science and social and economic and it's the it's the skill to me. The political skill is an is a high art. It is often looked down upon, but effective political uh, organizing and effective political action is fantastic. Tyler, what did you well, want to add? Well, I just have it, a, a quick comment here, Peter Neal, before you jump in, and that is just how important it is to have leaders like Peter Neal, who is leading through his entrepreneurial and creative uh, stuff, including the World Ocean Observatory. Um, to be the uh, disruptors, to come up with different ways of doing it. If there's anything I've learned about uh, our society right now, and I can, I can say that I observe this in all things, but in sports too, the audience knows. I like to use uh, b basketball as kind of a lens up to our, our society. And there's a saying in uh, basketball journalism uh, about the National Basketball Association, it's that it's a copycat league. Whoever wins the year before, everyone tries to m model their team in the offseason after last year's champion team. And uh, but you need the innovators, though. You know, if you're doing that, you're not gonna you're not gonna win. You're always gonna be chasing someone else. But that that's the way we are. I mean, that this is a human thing. And um, I do I do think uh, Peter Neal that you are we first of all we need to empower visionaries and people who are capable of coming up with these alternative narratives and an alternative ways of seeing the world uh, and give them the power, the political power and value them as a society to lead us to better outcomes. And you know, that's something we have not done yet. Disruption is not respected as leadership. 
it's it, it's it's when I talk, I don't want to use the word disruption. I want to talk about transformational action. Yeah, that's better. That, that it takes away the, the negative connotation right. that you're tearing something down. Right. Disruptors get burned at the stake. Yeah. Uh, and leaders, good leaders or, or, or leaders these days often are people who repeat the same quite courageous message, but it becomes fairly safe to say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And you have a slow incremental increase of, of, of believers, mm. and that's all good. Um, but the, the other thing that need, we need to understand is there's a simple answer to all of this. Uh, really? Okay. It's the ocean. If we want fresh water, the ocean is the biggest reservoir of fresh, potentially fresh water on Earth, which is 70% of the Earth. Mm -hmm. If we want um, food, the ocean is an incredible, fecund, sustainable uh, uh, source of food. If we want energy, what stores more energy uh, from the sun than any other part of the world but the ocean? It's a heat pump. Correct. All of these technologies exist for us to maximize desalinization, geothermal energy recovery from the ocean, uh, regulated fisheries. Um, all of these things are available to us. We mm. know how to do it. Huh. But we don't invest in it. We don't have leaders that stand up and say, uh, risk their careers on it. Uh, we don't have the uh, investors that are saying, Look, this is amazing. I just read an article this morning. I posted, I think, or we're, I'm going to do a radio on it, on a new very simple way to desalinate water or to take salt out of salt water to make it, make it potable. And, 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 you know, why isn't that guy getting the big grant? Right. Why, isn't, why isn't that team uh, essentially um, uh, uh, being the ones that are being invested with private and public monies right. that would enable them to take their their solution to scale. Let me ask you. I've been uh, there is a lot of activity in the Northeast off the Atlantic Seaboard these days on wind power. Uh, recent announcements by the Biden administration, but uh, a lot going on there. Are you encouraged by the development of offshore wind power and the potential that that uh, has? Yeah. I am. I am. I, I would be foolish to say I'm not. Yeah. Um, but if you start looking at the Scandinavian countries, mm -hmm. if you had any travel in Scandinavia over the last 10 years, you see nothing but wind towers. Yeah. Now, the state of Maine had an opportunity to um, um, uh, receive an astonishingly amount of money from uh, a Norwegian uh, developer to uh, uh, develop the wind 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 potential offshore Maine. And uh, it took one meeting with a former governor for the Norwegians, good, honest people as they are, to close up their attache cases, yeah. uh, take their contracts and go home. Uh, and the, because the reasons and the and the welcome that they were receiving uh, of bringing, a, you know, a billions of dollars to the state. Uh, by the way, the state of Maine's analysis of the state of Maine's wind power uh, potential equals exceeds the total wind power of all the other Atlantic states: New York, really? Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, um, uh, and New Hampshire. All of those combined really uh, are exceeded just by the main potential. Wow! And we lost that. 
we 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 stupid stupid politics yep. uh, made it go away. Not to mention all the jobs, uh, all of the the reprogrammed um, yeah. trades that would be associated. The transportation, the ship yes. construction. Yes. The working waterfronts, the boats, the shipping, all of this, all of the good, of solid blue-collar jobs, high-paying tech. It's great. Right. It, it, that'll come around, I got to think. About, I feel the same way about solar farms. I mean, somehow solar farms have gotten their wedge. Um, I think that's great. I have solar on my on my roof. I, I just paid my, my monthly solar bill today, $6.16. <laughs> so oh, that's a tax, which I can't get rid of. Yeah. But the point is, is that that solar is out there and it's taken forever to get it going. And why? Because we, you know, we have tariff problems and we can't invest. Well, it's market share it. battles. Uh, these yeah. producers don't want these newfangled exactly. things in there. They can't make any money off of that. Yeah. Well, well, if you want to do infrastructure, for example, uh, just taking the solar example, I read somewhere and I believe this, that on government land in the Southwest, contiguous government land, if you covered it with, you know, 80% of it with solar panels, right? This is not, this is, this is desert land. This, it, has, it has habitat issues. There are environmental issues, of course. I'm sure. But the fact is, it's not a national park. It's not this, it's not that. Okay. If you cover that with solar panels, you could create all of the energy required by the entire country. I've, I've heard that. As well. Now, why wouldn't government see that as the most powerful innovation that the investment that they could possibly make? And in order to do that, um, they need to invest in an infrastructure that can handle it. And our infrastructure already can't handle the solar power that's coming online right. from small solar small solar farms all around here. Yeah. Yeah, there's some complicated grid management issues, but these are within our te technological capability to uh, understand totally. and to master. We know how to do it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, Peter Neal, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And uh, I've got to and this is such a wide-ranging conversation. This, yeah. this, this conversation can't be one shot. We're going to have to talk to you again uh, because it is extraordinary to, to talk to a visionary and someone who – has examined these issues with DAP for so many decades now and brings a fresh and interesting perspective to difficult problems. Uh, closing thoughts? The sea connects all things. Just think about it. Just think about every drop of water that you use and how it's affected um, by your patterns of behavior. Uh, understand that it all comes down to the ocean uh, and dedicate yourself to some some response it doesn't have to be visionary it doesn't have to be uh, a huge uh, uh, movement uh, it can be one step at a time i say this all the time pick an issue put your energy and imagination into it and you're seeing it you see it in small political innovations and ordinances in small towns that's what happened to the plastic bag very good example that the plastic bag essentially was outlawed by virtue of small groups of people in small towns saying no. And they were effective by virtue of scale. And that's the answer to this thing, is essentially everybody adopting water conservation behaviors, investing their energy in transformational um, activities, 
and forcing our leaders by by the vote to change our habits and our our behaviors and our structures because if we don't do it human survival is at stake well thank you very much uh peter neil those are uh, definitely some insightful thoughts on how we can save the planet um before we wrap up, I just want to uh, wish everyone out there a very happy Independence Day weekend. If you're out uh, with your families, uh, traveling around, hopefully you're out there on a beach somewhere this weekend enjoying the American shoreline in one way or another. If you're on the beach, don't pick up what somebody else left and don't leave any <laughs> litter behind. That's right. Well, Peter Neal, thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Neal, the founder and director of the World Ocean Observatory. You have to check it out. Sign up for World Ocean Radio. Look at the products that they produce. It's extraordinary. I'm telling you, it's the best stuff out there. It's at worldoceanobservatory.org. Check it out. Get to know Peter Neal and his organization. And uh, we really appreciate the opportunity, Peter, to have you on and share your vision of what we can do better. And I appreciate it very much. Well, I'm grateful to you both for, for seeking me out. It's uh, been a pleasure. Is it sad?